welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I am Davida Goldberg, today's host. We'll be talking today to Ms. Judy Selden-Cohen and Rabbi Judith Schindler about their new book, Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America. So the book is about why synagogues and rabbis and lay people and congregants can and should engage in social action, and also how they can do so, and also why civic engagement is, in fact, an authentically and particularly Jewish mode of engagement. So I see kind of three pillars to the book, and it was pretty interesting. I, I have to admit, I haven't read many books that are about synagogues, um, and a lot of such books are written by rabbis for rabbis. This particular book is written by one rabbi and one lay leader, and I think that their audience um, is also meant to be that kind of um, plural kind of audience. People who should be interested in this book will be many different kinds of people, um, either affiliated or unaffiliated. Um, And I I have to say it was a pretty inspiring read. And to be frank, it's kind of surprising to be inspired and so interested in a book about um, synagogue engagement. So um, I thought the first question I would ask today is just get to get a little background about uh, the two authors personally um, and ask Rabbi Schindler and Ms. Selden Cohen, can you please tell me a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and what kinds of things went into your eventual interest in this particular topic? Great. Um, I'm Rabbi Judy Schindler, and I think what moved me towards this book is my father's background. My father was born in Munich, Germany, and my grandfather wrote for an underground Yiddish newspaper, and he had read Mein Kampf. He saw what Hitler could do, the devastation that would result as um, in following upon Hitler's leadership. And so my father spoke out in 1933, um, and they came to arrest him on the first day that they were making arrests for those who were uh, dissenters. And so my father went and slept at a Jewish hospital that night and left for Austria. Um, and so he was not arrested because he had uh, foresight and could see that that would happen. Ultimately, my father stayed in Germany for five years. Um, He and my grandmother and my aunt got out just in time. But I know what can happen when we are not civically engaged, um, when we don't speak out against the evils that we see. So I think that is one thing that really moved me to be a social justice advocate. Um, I became a senior rabbi of a congregation in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2003. And the day I became senior rabbi, we had a great leader of social justice, the social justice giant, Al Vorspan, and he was visiting the congregation. And I was frustrated because we were, as a congregation, deeply engaged in volunteerism, but we weren't using our power to make a difference in the structural issues um, that caused oppression. And so Al Vorspan gave me some guidance. I spent uh, the next 13 years working on that, moving the congregation towards civic engagement with some very dynamic lay leaders. Um, so I think that was the second thing in my background that moved me to write this book, um, to take what I've learned from uh, my own experiences and from those across the country and share that learning with others. And lastly, Ellie Wiesel, he was um, in Charlotte and met with a group of leaders. And we said to him, the, the world, there are so many issues in the world and the problems of our world are so vast. What do we do? And Ellie Wiesel said that we should pick one issue to which we um, feel a passion to respond, and we should really use our words to make a difference. And so I pray that in um, creating this book that Judy Selden Cohen and I are indeed using our words to make a difference. Our second author here, um, Judy Selden Cohen, um, what can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I have an entirely different background from Rabbi Schindler, um, which is one of the things that we think adds to the richness of the book. I was a business executive for 20 years. I worked for an NFL football team. I worked in management consulting. And a little bit more than 10 years ago, I retired from the business world and started volunteering at my synagogue, doing a lot of 
volunteerism and social justice work with Rabbi Schindler. And we did amazing things in our community. We became the first Jewish sponsored site for the Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools, which stem summer learning loss for children in high poverty. So now we're in our eighth year with 80 scholars who are um, doing better in school because their summer is more productive for their reading skills. We worked on affordable housing and homelessness. And all the change that we made in our community really motivated me to want to help other synagogues make change in their communities, in their states, and in this country. Frankly, I, I don't say that I'm retired anymore because now I'm an author with a new mission to help other congregations make change like we have. Yeah, wow. Um, that's pretty interesting trajectory. But I'm wondering, when you went into the synagogue and you found that that was the place where there was all this social action going on, were you surprised? Were you surprised that that was a context for um, for for social action, for things that are going on well beyond the Jewish community and beyond the synagogue? I think that's what drew me to our synagogue, which is is that Rabbi Schindler had been an outspoken voice in our community, and I was looking for someone who was active on social justice issues. So I was grateful to find it in, in our temple. So tell me, um, this is one of the most important um, arguments of your book is that this this kind of thing can and should happen in the synagogue, but it may not be very obvious to a lot of people. Why why is it the synagogue's mission, or why should it be a synagogue's mission to do this kind of civic engagement beyond the smaller Jewish community? Um, doesn't it seem outside of a traditional synagogue's mandate, which you know is already pretty full, you know, in terms of making room to create and coalesce the Jewish community community and have kids programming and have lectures and have dinners and fundraising for the show itself. Why do you think that the synagogue should make and, and does have room for civic engagement? That is a great question and a question which so many Jews ask. We like to say that Jews um, love to complain, right? The whole book of Numbers is uh, decades of our vetching and complaining. And that really is the first complaint that we hear. Why are we doing this? We have so much on our plate. Um, a synagogue, the main pillars of a synagogue really are uh, worship and study and engaging of acts of loving kindness, right? Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut, Chasadim. But we believe that you need, as a synagogue, a fourth pillar, right? The fourth pillar of civic engagement. Because, as we can see from the 2013 Pew study, that um, a primary expression of Judaism in the majority of those studied lives is working for justice. Um, and so we believe that this makes the synagogue relevant for today. This will indeed enrich and recharge the synagogue. This is what the majority of Jews want to be engaged in. Um, yes, a synagogue does wonderful programming, and we should maintain that programming. But in order to continue the flow of people finding meaning in synagogue and new people joining synagogues, um, I think a synagogue would be wise to add this as a fourth pillar. Um, and Ms. Sullivan, do you have a comment on that as well? Do you want to, uh, what yeah, do you think? Yeah. Um, I think that this is um, something that speaks to Jews, but it's also something that reflects who we are today as a Jewish people. We, we talk about helping the other, stepping outside of our synagogue walls, but we are not the same Jewish people that we were in previous Jewish generations. Used to be the stereotypical congregant was married to another white Jew of Eastern European descent and heterosexual. And, and that's not who we are today. Today, nearly half of all married Jews are with a non-Jewish spouse. And, and that number goes up to 58% of those who are married since 2000. So when we talk about the other, we have non-Jews, especially in, in our reform congregations, we have non-Jews who are members and active. Six percent of American Jews are people of color. So when we get involved in causes um, for Latino people, for African-American people, those are also our people. 
And as we become active in LGBT causes, um, we have LGBT members of in congregations across all streams of Judaism and in non-Orthodox American seminaries are also ordaining LGBTQ Jews as clergy. So this idea that when we only worry about ourselves, you know, who ourselves are has changed dramatically. And not only does that help us look outside our synagogues, but it helps bring people in because when we are active on these issues of the quote unquote other, it communicates that, that the other is welcome in our synagogues. Right. So I, I take it that that's what you mean by recharging in the, in the title that, that we recharge Judaism by, um, by being able to offer people something that they want, which is social action, as you say, um, was revealed by the Pew study. Um, and that's what I take as the kind of non-altruistic argument of your book, that social action is good for the Jews. Um, well, it's also one. good for Jewish identity in the sense of helping us understand who we are. When we engage in civic work in our communities with our synagogue, we learn why we do this as Jews. We learn more about our faith. We, we learn how to articulate. Right, that's great. That was actually, that was my follow-up question right here is what do you say to the person? One of the things that I found very interesting and admirable about your book is how interdenominational um, it is, how you're trying to bring together in this book and to speak to um, people who are affiliated with all sorts of different streams of Judaism or people who are unaffiliated. Um, but then it kind of draws out the question, what do you say to those different groups? What do you say to, first of all, the person who will ask, why do I even need a synagogue? Why do why do this within the context of a, of a Jewish path? Isn't doing, doing synagogue work or doing social work out of a faith institution just kind of tribalist or theistically dogmatic? What does the Jewishness bring to the social justice? We believe as Jews we are required to act in our communities. There's a great discussion about why synagogues have windows that we're supposed to look outside while we're praying and be connected to the world. When you look through history, you see many Jews who are engaged in social justice causes, and there are a lot of reasons, but part of our thesis is, is that this is a religious imperative for us. And I, I think that... Um there are a lot of Jews doing social justice. It is, um, and out of their sense of Jewish responsibility, and it's a part of their Jewish identity, but they can't really articulate why what they are doing is Jewish, right? Um, and so when we connect their social justice passion with their Jewish identity, both are strengthened. And they find themselves, those Jews who are doing social justice in the community are disconnected, they appreciate the deep connection. Um, when we're out there in the community doing our work, you always run into unaffiliated Jews who are so grateful that you're there, who are so grateful that you're lifting your voice um, and your Jewish voice. And they are proud. So many of our unaffiliated Jews Jews are very proud Jews. And so we are um, opening a doorway for them to increase that connection. In our book, we talk about a minion on the move, right? That we need to not just open up our doors like Abraham and Sarah, opening up their tent on all four sides to invite any passerby inside to appreciate the beauty of their theology and, and uh at that point, this new concept of monotheism, but we need today need to not only open our doors for all who want to enter, but we really need to go outside and meet Jews where they are. And the truth of the matter is Jews are engaged in the work of social justice. Um, so I think we deepen uh, the work of our congregations and we deepen the lives of those who are unaffiliated and may not be that knowledgeable about Judaism when we bring Judaism to them in this meaningful way. Yeah, I, what I um, some of the passages I particularly liked in your book were um, the, the defense from the Jewish texts, from the most traditional Jewish texts of civic engagement and some of, and you make an argument there that one of the tenets of Judaism is that it's a participatory religion and that it's about justice 
not just about ideology. And it seems to me that um, that that's a pretty powerful and very Jewish and not just neutral idea um, that Jews who may be interested in social justice can can find powerful to reinforce their um, their their secular humanist ideas. Yes, I, um, I, I agree. What we tried to do is take those texts and show how beautifully those sacred texts of Judaism speak to the causes about which we care so deeply, whether it's immigration or disabilities or the environment, right? If you look at the Via Hafta, um, right, we, so in our book, right, we recognize that some people are not drawn to the Jewish text. So we often put those texts as sidebars and people can choose to look at them or they can gloss over them or come back to them at a later time. But there is a richness and beauty of these Jewish texts. So if you look at the Via Hafta, it talks about the consequences of not, um, following God's commandments in the traditional sense, but we talk about the environmental consequences of not caring for our, our earth, right? And the, 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 the consequences of the ground not producing, um, or droughts or famines, um, those can be a result of our, uh, you know, disregard for environmentalism and, and nurturing the earth in the ways in which we are commanded to do. So that's one, uh, one text. The other one that I think is powerful is the Holiness Code and how the Holiness Code really speaks to, um, Kiddoshim Tehiyu, right? You shall be holy. And, um, it speaks to holiness outside the sanctuary, not inside the sanctuary. The holiness of not placing a stumbling block before the blind, right? And therefore working, um, to ensure that, uh, those, with disabilities or those who are differently abled have equal rights and justice. The commandment to welcome the stranger, to embrace the refugee, which would move us to work to um, in- increase the numbers of refugees who are allowed into our country or to work to protect the rights of undocumented youth in our country. You know, Davida, some people really struggle with what constitutes being religious in the world today. Um, In the course of our book research, we talked to 50 lay leaders and clergy across 18 synagogues to find out what was working in civic engagement through Jewish institutions and what was not. And the lay leaders were typically not all that versed in Torah study. Most of them, when they we asked them, you know, what Jewish text inspires your work, instead of giving us something from Torah or Talmud, they would quote Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and who said after he crossed the Selma Bridge with Dr. King during the Civil Rights Movement, that he was praying with his legs. We had a really interesting conversation with a lay leader in our synagogue who comes almost daily into our building for his organizing work on behalf of the aging in our community. And his grandson, who is eight years old, sees his frequent attendance and says that Stephen is the most religious person he knows. Stephen remembers that his own grandfather prayed three times a day. And he said to me, am I a faker that my grandson thinks that I am religious? But just as religious devotion can mean praying three times a day, it can also mean bringing the values of Judaism to our country. That does seem like a pretty convincing argument, but I'm also interested in in the actual literal um, function of prayer, which I think that you address a little bit in your book um, towards the middle in your in your chapter on Minion on the Move. Um, and you talk a little bit about uh, both the Ve'ahavta comes as a second paragraph to a longer prayer that is the most fundamental prayer, arguably, in Judaism, the Shema. And um, you talk about the function of prayer um, and the as a moment of intentionality that you can then use in the real world, right? So it's, so in a sense, if you're, if you're praying with your legs, it might set it up as if you're saying that you pray with your legs instead of also engaging with a more traditional Jewish ritual. Um, but so what would you say to somebody who is maybe coming from the other side of the spectrum, which I, I think is also part of the audience that you hope to address, the Orthodox reader who might say something about, you know, what is the, what is, how do I 
justify civic engagement as an authentic Jewish practice, uh, given that there's so many rituals and um, ceremonies to, uh, excuse me, that's quite not quite the right way to, to stage that, but given that there's so much to do in orthodoxy, why would I also have to go beyond those borders? You know, there's a, a funny story by a Chabad rabbi that um, illustrates that point. This um, Chabad rabbi um, writes in his blog that um, many Jews find a need to confess to him that their lack of ritual observance, um, it makes them a bad Jew. He calls it low Jewish self-esteem, right? He's in his black hat and he meets someone. And the first thing that they say is, I'm a bad Jew. I don't go to synagogue. But he writes that good Jews are also defined by their actions outside the synagogue because, and this is quoting him, being a good person is fundamental to being a good Jew, to bring God and godly notions such as justice, righteousness, and kindness into the world. Being a good Jew does not mean just going to the synagogue. A Jew has to go to the synagogue, but most of Judaism takes place outside it, how we behave outside the synagogue. And that's the end of the quote. But what we are providing is another path in. Jews know that there's prayer in synagogue, and many of them have chosen not to walk in the doors. When we have a minion on the move and we go outside, when we appeal to civic engagement, we find people who otherwise would not have thought of the synagogue as a place for them, that they find a place. And what we found time after time talking to lay leaders is many of those who found their place, who found their path into the synagogue through civic engagement became engaged in prayer and becoming temple president. Um, so they found that they, yes, go no, ahead. No, 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 sorry. You, you finish your thought and then I'll come back to it. I, yeah, I was just going to invite you to comment. Oh, okay. Ahead. Well, you know, Jewish teachings are pretty clear that it's not the study that's essential, but the action. Judaism was never meant to be lived purely inside the synagogue. And if you are praying with authenticity, then you know that you need to be moved to live the word of prayers in the in the world outside. So um, I don't think you could ever make the argument from a traditional stance that that prayer is the be all and and all of uh, Jewish living. Right. Um, there also you you seem to find some really beautiful symbolism in some of the actual actions of prayer that you can then kind of used to illustrate the values of civic engagement. For example, you talk about the minion as standing up, standing with others. Do you want to explain a little bit about more about how that, what that relationship is? So the minion on the move is the perfect concept to illustrate the value of moving outside the synagogue. Our Torah teaches that 10 people can literally change the world, right? But we need to make those changes not inside our sanctuary, but outside our sanctuary. So at Temple Bethel for years, um, on Martin Luther King weekend, we observed that weekend by inviting an African-American church into our sanctuary, right? And the preacher, the pastor would preach and the choir would sing on Friday night. And then on Sunday, we'd go to that same African-American church and I would preach and our choir would sing. But on Saturday, we had the Martin Luther King parade, right? And it, it didn't seem uh, to be a reflection of our sense of kedusha of holiness, right? That we would be at the Martin Luther King parade, but for so many of our congregants, that had deep meaning. So there was a group that would meet at our Temple Bethel parking lot and go march in the parade. But it was never an officially sanctioned event, right? Um, I would sort of make an, an announcement, non-announcement, that we have Shabbat services. Um, but I hear some people are gathering for the parade and they're meeting at whatever time to gather. And then it dawned on us. Some of my younger clergy said, you know what? They actually said this in relation to gay pride, a gay pride parade. Right. They said, you know what? We can have an interfaith service or a Jewish service and read Torah and then be a part of the gay pride celebration. And so we had this revelation that we didn't need to just pray inside our sanctuary. We could actually bring prayer to where people were gathered for justice. And so it was two weeks before MLK when I had this revelation and I called a, a, a faith community nearby and I said, can we have an interfaith service? And we created an interfaith service and we read Torah on Shabbat and our preschool community 
kids got onto a float with the preschool kids from two African-American churches, and we were part of the parade, and we were teaching our kids not only how to pray with their words, but to pray with their feet. Um, a minion on the move really brings to life the values of the traditional minion. A traditional minion, like the minion on the move, right, brings healing. It creates proximity with those who are suffering. It enables personal stories to be exchanged, and it enables Jewish memories to be created. And so that was sort of a novel insight from our book and our research and our experiences that moved us to move our minion literally to the places where people are are gathered for justice. Yeah, that's wonderful because, in fact, the synagogue, although it's a holy space, there's nothing really that important about the walls. What's most important traditionally um, is the Torah scroll, which, of course, you can move wherever you want as long as you have 10 people. So it's it's the community of 10, or 10 metaphorically, um, numbers that is important, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we brought, we bring our Torah with us and we had this journey for justice in 2015. The reform movement in partnership with the NAACP marched from Selma to Washington, D.C. for 40 days. Um, and each day, different group of rabbis, tons of rabbis and tons of congregants would take a, a leg of that march, right? And we carried the Torah the whole way with us for 40 days from Selma mm-hmm. to Washington. And each state that we marched through, and passed through, we dealt with a different issue related to um, racial justice, whether it was education or voting rights or other issues. So we, there are so many times now we, where we literally bring our Torah with us on our marches, on our journey, um, and in our worship on the road. Mm-hmm. And do you stop and do some Torah learning along the way? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be honest, a lot of the examples that we're coming up up with today and, and in your book as well, they're politically charged, right? Um, you know, if you're marching um, with the with the Selma marches uh, to Washington, you're on one side of what a lot of people think is unfortunately a two-sided um, issue. There's other issues which are even more kind of up for debate um, that you – bring in as examples. How do you deal with the idea that pol- that there's a politicization that might go on, the fears that people have about be- being partisan, maybe destroying a sense of community through partisanship? Um, what is your take on that? How do you deal with it? So we talk about the importance of listening to your congregation to understand where what troubles them about these political issues? Because what we are looking to do is to live our Jewish values, not to politicize our congregations. And that means that if we are concerned about refugees, that we want to listen to the stories of our congregants, perhaps they themselves or their parents were refugees and they have a particular pull to this story, or if it's an issue about health care, to listen to the stories of people who are having difficulties paying for their health care needs. But we believe that you have to start by understanding the stories of your congregants so that you can find a common ground for taking a stand. If it's your social justice committee by themselves, then um, absolutely it can be viewed as too political. But when you take the time to find out how people really feel, and you do it in a way that allows the minority to hear those stories, it's much easier and less political for the synagogue to say, okay, we are going to take a stand on this issue because the majority of our congregants feel passionately that this is how we need to heal our world. So in your primary research going out there and asking other congregations what works and what didn't work, did you hear any stories of kind of horror stories of this issue where, you know, things were things went badly because things were made partisan? We did. We um, we actually have a section called Cautionary Tales 
uh, everywhere else in the book, we, we identify temples and cities and specifics. Um, and in the cautionary tales section, we do none of that. And in fact, you know, change the story enough to make it truly anonymous. But we find that if congregations don't take the time to listen, that they get themselves in trouble. They end up on the opposite side of an issue that affects uh, a congregant's business. They find out that they have naively gone down a path and they had an expert in the congregation who could have explained to them why that path was not a path to change. So it's really important to take the time to understand, to listen, to educate, to strategize so that what you do makes a difference in the right way. Mm -hmm. So you actually... yeah, go ahead. So I just love to add that Judaism thrives on um, meaningful, deliberative dialogue and debate, right? From Abraham challenging God, right? God says, you know, uh, that the injustices of Sodom and Gomorrah have reached me and, you know, I want to destroy the city. Abraham challenges him and says, you know, will not the judge of, of the world act with justice and, and challenges God to look down on the city and see if there are those 10 righteous souls, um, so that they will, the innocent will not be killed with the wicked in that case. Um, and then the Talmud thrives on debate. We have 6,200 pages of debate in the Talmud. And actually the Talmud goes with the majority opinion. And that's what we are doing. We are struggling to listen, to dialogue, to debate, to understand, to find common ground so that we can move forward and really um, bring the values of our faith to our community. So we believe that, you know, it is that listening and listening to the majority and to the minority that's so critical, not only with the Supreme Court and, um, you know, documenting the minority opinion so we can learn from it. And sometimes it is that minority opinion that leads the way for necessary change in the future. Um, but it's also, you know, in the Talmud that uh, we have the stories of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And the majority of halakha is determined according to the house of Hillel. And the rabbis ask why. And they say, they answer their own question, of course. They say that Hillel not only um, listened and tried to understand Shammai's opinion, but Hillel, in making its argument, it Proposed and um, responded to or proposed uh, Shammai's arguments first. And so we can learn a lot from that, that we need to listen to the other. We need to understand their arguments. We need to put forth their arguments for, first as we move forward. Um, and hopefully in that process, we can work together. Yes, um, civic engagement has the potential to be divisive, and we don't want that to happen. We want to keep the congregation together. And that's why this book is so critical because it lays out the models and the learning that has come from congregations who have done this job successfully. Yeah, you have a very specific blueprint here with um, a a certain number of kind of pillars or uh, actions to take. I want to ask you about that in just a moment, but I also just wanted to comment about this idea of listening and how important that is and how kind of inspired I was by your chapter on this because these days I think we're people are feeling that politics has become even more of a powder keg than it has ever been that might be one of these kind of anachronistic feelings maybe it's always been a powder keg but it's very very hard to talk to people who don't agree with you and it could be that we can find incredible inspiration in Judaism about how to have difficult dialogues. And it could be really interesting that the synagogue could be a place to teach us actually how to have a kind, empathetic, and understanding dialogues with one another, um, which is in contrast to what I think is going on in public. Um, so I really appreciated that that angle that you took in your book. And I wonder what you can say about that and also what the other kinds of how-tos that you've given us in your book are. Well, first of all, we do believe that if we can find common ground as Jews in our synagogue on the really tough political issues of today, that that is a sign of great hope for us as Americans, that we can also then find common ground as Americans to move forward. So we are hopeful that that this model works for us, not only as Jews, but as Americans. 
And we have tried to give as pragmatic um, structures as we can to help synagogues go down this path because it is a new path for many synagogues, <clears throat> but they are motivated to do something. You know, we talk to rabbis and, <clears throat> excuse me, and they have people saying to them, I need you to speak on this issue. And we have, and they have other people saying, you know, please don't speak on this issue. And that, that does um, cre create a, a difficult dynamic. And so what we set out are a, a set of different frameworks that allow both lay leaders and rabbis, in addition to the congregation at large, sort through. <clears throat> so, um, we have four models that we talk about that help congregations figure out what's the process by which we are going to take a public stand. And, and this ranges from a pretty straightforward process of making a resolution. And this is how our synagogue started with a resolution that we were going to take a stand on domestic abuse, which was a great place for us to start. It was part of the advice um, that um, Rabbi Schindler had gotten from Alvor Spann that start with something that's not going to create a lot of controversy. And, you know, it's hard to be on the other side of domestic abuse. But once we got that process started, we were able to move to affordable housing, which has, you know, a little bit more controversy to it. For some synagogues, the resolution model works. We have an agenda model when things get more complex and there's more um, issues coming to your door. There is um, a third model called the coalition model. There's something called CBCOs that are active today, congregation-based community organizing, where synagogues and churches and mosques band together to make their voices heard on issues of faith that work across faiths. And there are some synagogues who have found that model to be extremely helpful. And then Finally, um, the last model is the traction model, which is synagogues that are not concerned about the board weighing in on every detail. Say, if you can find an issue that you can mobilize congregants are, and there's a, a Jewish basis of this issue, then have at it and, and, and go forth. So we give readers a set of questions to answer about their congregation, about their board, so that they can figure out which model works best for them. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me like there was a couple of even very simple ideas that you presented in the book that like, I, if I want to strike a committee in my shul, I kind of have a very good idea right now of what would be the first steps. And you say the first step is to, is to listen to the congregation and to gather ideas you can do so by a survey, but you're pretty assertive to say that a survey won't be enough, right? Yes. Um, you know, we start, the listening campaigns happen in many ways in many congregations. I think the best example of a listening campaign was when B'nai Jeshurun in New York City started this process, right? And they did 613 one-on-one -on -one conversations to reflect the 613 mitzvot commandments in the Torah. But last time they entered, they embarked on a listening campaign. They actually did three parlor meetings, right? And asked people, you know, what, what are they angry about? What are they concerned about? What keeps them up at night um, and move forward to find their direction based on parlor meetings? So largely today, people are using parlor meetings, um, though some congregations are still engaged on those one-on-one -on -one, um, dyads to learn about issues because it's not only about hearing about what the, the congregants care about and their passion, but it's about building relationships that keep people coming to the table. And also you're able to find great leadership in the congregation when you embark on that listening stage. Um, the next the next step after listening would be educating, right? Once we know our issue, right, we want to take on the issue of refugees or immigrants. Then you need to really go deep and learn about the issue, right? You can't just say, okay, we're working on this and automatically move into advocacy 
advocacy. We have to learn. We have to bring in experts. We have to meet with community leaders and in this case with lawyers representing asylum seekers, right, and refugees themselves and professionals helping to bring refugees into our communities and get them settled. Um, Once we've educated ourselves and asked each person we've sought wisdom from, what would you like us to advocate for? We need to determine our advocacy agenda, right? Do we want to work locally? Do we want to work statewide? Do we want to work on a national level or all three at once? Then we need to strategize. Um, How are we going to do this? Then we need to act and move forward. Then we need to reflect, (laughs) celebrate, and go back through the cycle of civic engagement with listening once again. Mm-hmm. And you suggest in the book that one of the easiest or most accessible, way, accessible ways to begin action is by affiliating with some other organization that already has some traction. Um, and you have also here a ladder of civic engagement, which includes joining a movement that already exists and a few other things. Um, Ms. Heldon Cohn, did you want to weigh in on that? Yes, I did. The, uh, the, we find that the, the ladder of civic engagement really illustrates to our readers that not every congregant wants to do every element of this work, right? Some people are, 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 are uncomfortable advocating. They care I'm sorry, about... Might, I'm sorry, you might have to repeat yourself. Your microphone is going in and out a little bit. Can you start again with this uh, comment? Sure. So the the ladder of civic engagement illustrates how there's a place for every congregant on an issue that the synagogue wants to take a position on. Not everybody wants to do everything, but when we start with volunteering, um, then People, you know, people want to show up and help. So, for example, if a congregation wants to take a position on the environment and they start with a community garden, then calling their congregants to come help us plant is something that people can say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And as they move, the synagogue moves up the ladder, it gives them a basis for educating, right? So if we're going to have a garden, we need pollinators. What do pollinators do? And then that can lead to an understanding of, we, for example, in North Carolina, we, we have several groups that are trying to repopulate the pollinators because it's a real problem for farming if you don't have the bees and the bugs fertilizing the, the plants. And while um, advocating for pollination might not be a place to start, once you've educated people on where our food comes from and how it grows, that becomes a, a progressive outgrowth of that work. So we define this ladder as including volunteering, educating, donating, three rungs that synagogues are really comfortable being on historically, but encouraging synagogues to move up that ladder to advocating for change um, in the sources of injustice, for organizing with other other congregations to make their voices heard, and joining a movement to to really change the basis of um, how these things have, have come about. I think that we've covered quite a lot of the material in your book. I wonder if there's something that we haven't talked about yet that you guys would really like to make sure to our listeners know about. There are probably two final things um, we'd like to address. First of all, the court of three strands. There's a chapter on that. And the power, right? Creating systemic change is about using your power in an effective way. We see lots of marching today, right? We have women's marches and protests and all these um, expressions of uh, people being unhappy with the status quo and wanting to create change. And so um, there are effective ways to create change. And one way is building our power. So I'd love to, if you don't mind, just talk a moment about uh, the way we build power in within synagogues. Um, This work is most effective when it is not just the rabbi giving a sermon on the issue, and rabbis are incredible with their passion and their abilities, but they can't make the necessary change. They have too uh, many other commitments that weigh on them, life cycle and services and b'nai mitzvah and, um, you know, hospital visits. And it's just a, it's a very full job to educate a community and to serve a community and to lead a community. And so we use as our guide, this 
a phrase from Ecclesiastes 4 that talks about the power. It says, it says two are better off than one, than one, right? They have a greater benefit for their earnings. Um, if one falls, the other one, if one falls, the other person can lift him up. If one is attacked, two can stand up to the attacker. And it says a threefold cord is not readily broken. So we talk about, um, we talk to the different dimensions of this threefold cord. One strand is the rabbi, a second strand is the lay leader, and a third strand is uh, the congregation and, and the congregants themselves. So for civic engagement to be effective, the rabbi has to work in a way that brings the congregation with him or her. So in the book are 10 steps to success for the rabbi. Um, but one of the ones I want to talk about is bringing your congregation with you, right? When you're out there speaking on an issue, you need to bring your congregation with you, whether it's physically traveling with you to your state, your state capital, capital or country's capital, or whether it's taking congregants with you digitally, um, there's power. And we had a story in our book of a woman from Wisconsin. She just moved to a new congregation. She'd inherited this crop walk, which her congregation did every year. And in her second year, she finds herself at this hunger walk walking alone right? No congregant joined her. And they said, this is what our congregation does. But if you're marching alone as a rabbi, you probably shouldn't be marching on that issue unless you're doing it as an individual and a person who cares about a cause, but not in the name of your congregation. So one key piece of wisdom of the 10 pieces of wisdom for rabbis is bringing your congregation with you and not marching alone. The second strand, uh, Judy will pick up. So the second strand is lay leaders. We as lay leaders need our clergy to elevate issues in our congregation and in our community. But there's a lot of time-consuming work that needs to get done. And this is the role of the congregants, the volunteers in the community. And we illustrate five Ps, passion, proficiency, personality, partnership, and pipeline for what a clergy need to look for in these lay leaders so that they can be effective as a team. And the one I'd like to talk about is partnerships because a successful partnership is marked by mutual trust. And Rabbi Judy and I, Rabbi Schindler and I have that partnership that we have developed over, I think this book is our sixth major collaboration over more than a decade. But our story is replicated in many synagogues across the country. We heard from one lay leader in Dallas who said every one of us who worked with our rabbi would walk through fire for him if he needed it. He has built such a strong relationship with us. Uh, another um, lay leader said about her rabbi, I went to Israel with her. I went to um, to her to D.C. with her, I told her, I will follow you anywhere. Just tell me where you need to go. And that relationship where you know as a lay leader that your clergy has your back, where you as clergy know that your lay leader is going to be informed and give you the material that you need, that helps you move this ahead. Because also in our um, cautionary tales, we talk about what happens if you aren't in this together and it is not effective. And yeah, I think sorry. And the, just the final strand is um, making sure the congregants are engaged. And, and we use the text from Nitzavim, the portion called Nitzavim, where Moses is speaking to the Israelites to affirm the covenant. And Moses says, you stand here right before God, you tribal heads, you elders, you officials, the men of Israel, you children, you women, even the stranger in your midst from woodchopper to water drawer to enter into the covenant. And success in civic engagement is increased when we invite all segments of the congregation to stand with us in this work, brotherhood, sisterhood, seniors, religious school, each um, segment of the congregation can be involved in the issue which we care about, whether it's, you know, hunger or affordable housing or the environment. Um, when a congregation makes it a congregation-wide issue, um, each, some people will do service projects, some people will advocate, some people will look at uh, solutions through philanthropy and tzedakah. But when we bring these three strands together of the rabbi and the lay leaders and the congregation, we can indeed make some of those structural changes that I believe Deuteronomy calls us to make. 
make, right? Deuteronomy says, there shall be no more needy among you, right? When we really engage in this work, we can create a society where um, there's less oppression and greater justice. Well, that's beautiful. I, I really particularly appreciated throughout the book all the different quotes that you take from Tanakh, from Torah and um, prophets and Talmud to illustrate these points and to show that these are really Jewish values, um, you know, that we that we take care of our poor and the widow, that we do so without condescending to them. It's a big Jewish concept that you also mentioned in the book that, you know, it's not about helping somebody in order to kind of use your privilege, but it's an, it's about uplifting everyone all together. So I really appreciated your book a lot, and I really appreciate this conversation. And I'm wondering what next um, is going on for you. Are you going to be writing another book? Are you going to be working on new collaborative projects together? What's your future together? Well, I think first we what we want to do in the coming year is help synagogues use the work from this book to make change. You know, this, the, the, the purpose of the book is for the readers to say, oh, we can do this and this is a path for us. And so to the extent that we can help synagogues across the country make this happen, I think that is our first priority. Mm-hmm. That's great. So are you going on some kind of tour, a speaking tour? Are you going to be writing more? Do you have another different project? In so the queue? We, we will be traveling the country and speaking. Um, I've been asked to, to speak at congregations and Judy's. Judy, where you're, you're most interested in speaking where? where? So I'm speaking at, um, there's a group called Limud that comes out of the United Kingdom. And so I'm, I'm booked at a Limud in New Orleans and looking for other ones now. Uh, Oh, well, the in Toronto. <laughs> Come here. Oh, yeah, love to. We'll love to. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, then in terms of future projects, we, um, we are considering what it would mean to broaden this book, to look not only at recharging Judaism, but actually recharging faith, how civic engagement is good for houses of worship, people of faith, and America. So I'm, um, I, I speak to a lot of ministers. They're struggling with the same things that rabbis are struggling with. Like, how do we use our voice as a congregation to make a difference in the world? So one project of interest of mine is to sort of see how this plays out in mosques and churches and and sort of weave into this book the other teachings of faiths um, that move people of faith to engage in this work. Um, I'm also deeply interested in interfaith relations and really going deeper in my study of um, other faith traditions so I can be um, a a better social justice activist. I find that there's a lot of um, ignorance out there uh, not there's there's a lot of anti-Semitism out there, but there's a lot of Islamophobia, and I wish I had the knowledge to combat some of that. When someone says, you know, if somebody says this is what the Torah says, I I can say actually it doesn't say that, right? But if somebody says this is what the Quran says, and and I don't have that knowledge, um, I'm not being the upstander that I need to be in order to create the safest um, and most successful America that I can create. So it sounds like you've kind of identified one of the one of the topics that you want to make into a civic engagement action coming forward. But uh, I think yeah, we're running so- out of time right now, and I just wanted to thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you, Davida. 